Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to a very special episode of Book Club. Our guest today is author Ben Wardle. And Ben has written a book that's coming out later this month called Mark Hollis, A Perfect Silence. I think everybody out there knows what a big deal Talk Talk have been for me, always have been, always will be. I love that band. One of the most interesting and creative and surprising trajectories of any band ever. And what, fe- what feeds a lot of that is the, the perfect silence of Mark Hollis. I think as most people know, he basically stepped away from music 25, 30 years ago and was practically never heard from again. Very little was known or heard from Mark Hollis. And then he died just over three years ago. So Ben has interviewed loads of people to get an idea of what Mark's life was like. What was the real Mark Hollis all about? And you learn in here things that I never would have guessed. Things like he was really into motorcycles. He played a lot of golf. All these things that I never would have guessed. So a book like this, as you can imagine, is just manna from heaven for me. In fact, uh, I was gifted, thank you Brent, uh, gifted a copy of the book that should be coming my way uh, later this month. And we may be having a free one to give away to you guys I'll tell you about that at the end as well. So this was a this was a delicious conversation to have with somebody who did a lot of the research about Mark and his life and what it, what his life must have been like. I'm so grateful that Ben did all this heavy lifting because I have wanted to know so much about Mark and to be able to have Ben come on and get allow me to ask some of those questions was really eye-opening. And what's interesting to me too, Ben's a really funny guy. We ended up having a pretty lighthearted conversation, all things considered, which I was not anticipating. One thing that's funny about this, so either he or I or all, both of us messed up on the time. There was a miscommunication about when, what time we were going to start this interview, and it ended up happening a few, few hours earlier than I was anticipating. And uh, he sends me an email saying, I'm on Zoom, I'm ready. And I'm thinking it's happening later in the day. What I had intended to do in that time before leading up to the schedule time that I was planning on was do a lot more research on Ben, who he is, what his background is, you know, why he wrote the book, what his history is. So he busts my chops about that a couple of times in here. If you're wondering where that comes from, that's what it is. So anyway, if you're a Talk Talk fan, this is indispensable. And if you're not, hopefully you learn some things and more than anything, pre-order the book. The link is in the show notes. It's the only place to do it. It's going to be so interesting when this book comes out and tells the real story. Here's Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, Talk Talk are one of my favorite bands of all time. So I am I have been chomping at the bit to have this conversation with you because they are just so fascinating. I mean, you know Well, this. I hope I don't let you down. No, I can't imagine that you would. And I'm going to try, because of the pre-order, we're going to, I th- I'm going to try and get this out this weekend so that it's okay. fresh and that people sit, hear it and get a chance to pre-order the book if they want. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So first and foremost, ta- as I mentioned, Talk Talk are one of my favorite bands of all time. In fact, I think they're one of the most fascinating bands to look at under a microscope ever because that transition from the first album to the last, no other band ever has done anything quite like that. And um, I had Paul Webb on here a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and I was so excited to ch- chat with him about the band and get to know sort of some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And it seemed very clear to me that he did not want to be the spokesman for Talk Talk. Um, he had a new album of his own, Rustin Man, that's great to talk mm-hmm. about. And uh, I just didn't get very far with him on some of those things. What's your fascination with with talk talk have you been a fan forever 
or were no. you just a writer and this was a juicy subject to cover? No, neither of those really. I oh, mean, really? I my entry point into Talk Talk is probably the same uh, as a lot of other people in this country, which you know, I mean, it's it's quite well documented how cruel and um, sort of consensus terror-led the music press over here were during the 80s. And so Talk Talk got very quickly, maybe in some cases deservedly, because of the ludicrous kind of white, famous white-suited photo shoot that they that Michael Putland took in the early 80s for their first album. They got kind of written off as also ran major label um, new romantic copyists and um, they just couldn't get arrested. They had a hit with Today and the album did all right, but it was, but in terms of respect from uh, the, a press who were, you know, really ruling the taste of, of young people such as myself, you know, we all fell for the, the enemy and the melody makers uh, word. They just, you know, they just weren't up there with the Smiths or whatever else was going on that was credible during the 1980s. So when I came to them, I, I was literally, I think I would, I just started, I just started a job at a record company. My background, um, uh, straight out of university, I was always interested in music and I just started a job as a talent scout at a record company and I went into a local branch of a news agent uh I suppose, I suppose you'd call them a grocery store over there kind of corner shop but it's a chain of stores called WH Smiths who used to stock uh music and I bought a number of things that they had in their sale one of which was the cassette of Spirit of Eden which I'm not going to lie I bought because I liked the cover I don't think I've changed since then. I, I, I always uh, I judge an album by its cover. In fact, I've sure. written a book about album covers called The Art of the LP. That's a bit of a plug, you see. I can nice. just uh, segue. I know that there. book. I didn't know you wrote okay. that. Yeah, I've heard oh, yeah, of that okay. book, sure. Cool. And, um, yeah, so I bought Colour of Spring, and I was aware of Talk Talk. I think I was aware of them around the time of today, which I did, which I thought was a bit naff. You know, I filed it alongside Flock of Seagulls, although probably there's a load of people in the States who think Flock of Seagulls are great. Um, I'm they, were huge, yeah, they, were huge, they were huge over there, weren't they? Huge. Uh, uh. So, yeah, I filed them alongside that, and I was vaguely aware of the, of the previous record, which had actually finally, they kind of, had a hit in the UK. They they finally garnered some, not only a hit, but they'd made they they'd played the tube. You know, they'd been on the telly. They, they were finally semi accepted in the UK. And I bought this record, not really expecting anything other than you know, Color of Spring Part Part Two. And I'd quite liked Happiness Is Easy. I hadn't really paid much attention. Life's What You Make It was on the university jukebox probably when I was uh, sitting there drinking and pretending to read Nietzsche it was really surprising. I didn't really know what to make of it. And, um, but, and I think it, it, you know, I don't really need to go into detail about what my response to it was, because I think it probably mirrors a lot of people my age, maybe a little bit older who bought that record and it just transformed the way that they listened to music. And I think it was cemented a few weeks later. I, myself and a friend who was also a scout, we went, we drove up to see my, girlfriend who lived kind of out in the countryside outside of London and we foolishly we were actually a little bit over the limit drinking wise and um we ran out of petrol in the middle of the countryside as the as dawn was breaking really this is how I remember it it may well be colored by you know the gap of 30 years but I just remember listening to the rainbow as the sun rose over these we were these really tall kind of um uh, Suffolk um you hedges that we were kind of stranded between with no petrol and it was almost as if the music was being written as the day was unfolding it was just that organic and and beautiful and I kind of turned to my friend you know with a just who's a huge fan of music like myself and you know to share the moment he was unfortunately he was completely comatose so he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't experiencing the same magic right. as, uh, as I was. But in yeah, a way, that yeah. perhaps made it more powerful um, that I we know weren't you know, just sitting there kind of nodding mm -hmm. and, and getting into it in a, in a slightly cheesy way in the yeah. 
There's nothing quite like the perfect music at the the perfect song in the perfect moment at the perfect time. It just cements uh, these moments. It it makes these moments even more meaningful when all those things come together, you know, especially if the right people are there and the right scenery and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, I was feeling a little bit fragile after a night's drinking as well. So that probably had some, some effect, but it certainly has always, it's been an album that stayed with me. And strangely enough, I mean, I, I remember there was a big kind of um, at the time in the industry, I was just a talent scout. So I wasn't really connected to a lot of the kind of big players, you know, like David Munns, who ended up signing uh, Talk Talk to Polydor after they after they got out of their deal with EMI. But I remember my boss, uh, my head of A&R kind of, you know, talking enthusiastically about this Talk Talk record. Yeah, there was this kind of there was an industry thing going on for me as well. There was a friend of mine at the label I was working at, who was also, a bit, it turned out, a big Talk Talk fan, a guy called Callie, who you may have heard of because he, at the time, was doing A&R. He went into, he became the art director at Ireland and, and then went then went freelance and did lots of, uh, uh, he published a book of mine. He's done lots of books. He's, he manages um, Bill Drummond and the KLF, and oh, wow. he's, he also manages Nick Drake's estate as well now. So he's a very connected guy, and he ended up doing a lot of the reissue stuff with Hollis and 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 getting to know Lee and Paul uh, during the Orang um, period because he because he kind of put their artwork together as well. So, but this is all prior to that. This is 1988, and so Callie would you know regularly do back in the days of cassettes, cassettes of Talk Talk, which he'd pass around very, you know, it was like a select club in the uh, the A&R department of people who appreciated Talk Talk because they were still a very, you know, they were pretty underground. And certainly at that point, we were on the, there was not a great deal going on in the UK and then sort of Madchester happened. And, you know, they were really the opposite end of all that kind of Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, you know. And then by the time Laughing Stock was released, uh, on on Polydor, I was um, I remember buying it and was immensely disappointed with it. it just didn't for me at the time have the same magic as uh, a, a Spirit of Eden. And, I would agree. Uh, it's grown on me over the years, but the, yeah. there's an immediacy to Eden that Laughing Stock isn't. Laughing Stock's yeah. more dense, I'm, and I think people love it for that, which I do too now. But I'm with you. At the time, it mm. it wasn't. It didn't quite measure up to me. Yeah, I feel slightly ashamed. You know. Uh, 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 admitting that but I, I also remember at the time you know i didn't really get on with daydream nation by sonic youth i mm. went to see sonic youth didn't really get that didn't really get the slint by everyone talking about slint and mm-hmm. so the whole kind of post-rock thing that was maybe exploding at the same time as that it just didn't you know i mean i'm my background is pop i love pop you know pop music um guitar bands you know mm-hmm. post-punk new wave call it what you want that was my background i had a label a little bit later in the 90s um, we signed bands like the wanna dies and sleeper and hey i know both those bands nice oh okay well you know i mean that's my background is 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 a and r before i became a a a writer so yeah um but you but you know all this because you did lots of research (laughs) because you're a professional there john well, I uh, thought I had a couple hours still to kill, and so I, know, I, that's I, know. How I was going to spend it. I'm not throwing you under the bus at all. I'm just, I'm, so, you know, I'm Completely trying to. My fault. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm saying the listener. I'm trying to fool the yeah. listeners into thinking that uh, we've, we've already planned it out. Right, right. Um, um, okay, yeah. so let's talk. I, I again, having not read the book, I but hmm. thankfully, uh, a good buddy of mine, knowing I'm a huge fan, has pre-ordered a book for me, which oh, should nice be coming one. when they come out with my name in it and everything. And um, is the book? I can, I can check if you want because I've got a I've got a promo copy here. So Ooh. just check with whether you, you'd be in the L section. Yeah, John Lamoureux in the, uh, in the role of honor. Let's check. It'd be terrible if I discover live on air that you're not in there. <laughs> That's right. Yes, you're in there. Yes, I made it. I can't really. I'll just try to hold it, hold it, hold it up so you can see that. Uh, where my finger there is. I am, yes. See that. Hey. You. Thank you, Brent, <laughs> for doing that for me. Um, good. So the book, I believe, focuses more on Mark. I mean, let's th- he is talk about an enigmatic, enigmatic figure. Mm. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't know wh- how to couch this other than just to ask you some of the most point blank, obvious things that stick out about his career. First and sure, foremost, I mean, was it really that? And I don't know if you even know. I don't know what kind of access you had. First, uh, 
did he was he so turned off by the laughing stock experience that he just had no more desire to be a part of the music industry granted he made that solo album about five years later but mm. that's it so who walks away like that and why and so in with such a perfect silence as you say i mean i couldn't even find i can't i've googled i can't even find recent i know he's dead now but recent pictures of him you know there's nothing there's no trail no it's a i mean that's fascinating i suppose and it, yeah i mean it's fascinating and uh frustrating not to have that but it, i suppose it also doesn't it fit it fits the sound of the records in a way it does it, you're right in an uncanny yeah. way and i don't think you know some people have asked me whether that was like a you know almost like a deliberate sort of image way of kind of a, a assembling this image a, a around himself it's really i'm i mean one of the things i say in the book and maybe it's because i'm coming at it from um not just the perspective of 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 a you know, a writer who never met him, but also someone who worked in the record industry, is that it's very easy to mythologize, you know, this artist who just, you know, he's the only one, he's the only one who can't just walked away from the industry, never did anything else, never had any desire to do anything else. But I think the big, possibly prosaic answer to why he was, he, he did that not perhaps why he did it, but how he was able to do it. And I think he that is because he had earned quite a lot of money. Really? And I, okay, I suspect, I've always wondered. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, the last the, the Polydor deal was was uh, was a couple of million pounds. Two albums firm, which explains why he did the Hollis album. He, I mean, he definitely wanted. You know, he was he was. He was working at that. I don't think he walked away after Laughing Stop in a in a in a way you know in in a way that, that, that where he was disgusted and 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 disappointed with everything. So you don't think when he walked away, he wasn't intending to stay away forever. I don't think he. I mean, he certainly is quoted by a number of people as saying that his solo record was going to be his last record. Mm. I don't. Uh, as far as I know, and you'll have to forgive me actually, because it's been a while since I put a full stop on the book. But I, but I don't um, ever think that he said "Laughing Stop" will be my last ever album. I mean, what the, the person that did say that was Tim Freeze Green, and yeah. he, you know, obviously his for the, for listeners that maybe don't know, Tim Freeze Green was the the other songwriter and also kind of producer in in Talk Talk for the certainly for the lion's share of their records everything apart from uh, apart from the first album so not to interrupt but I feel like too he's almost the enabler in this story in some ways because if if Mark hadn't met Tim his musical palette may not have expanded quite like it did I feel like the other members of the band, like Lee and Paul, start taking a backseat to Tim coming in, and Tim and Mark have this vision, and they just go off into the nether regions to explore what the sounds in their head, and the other guys sort of follow along. I've tried to get Tim on here, too, and he's turned me down because he doesn't like talking well, to Well, you know, I mean, this it's no, I don't know whether it is a secret, there's no secret. Tim, you know, Tim hasn't spoken uh, about about Hollis since the first decade of the of the uh, of the noughties. I don't think he's really? spoken in public about talk talk for you know over fifteen years now. And and as you experience with Paul and and Lee is the same. They're they're very reluctant to speak. So you know, I did speak to everyone who would speak who had been involved with talk talk. But you know, those three were are missing. Fortunately, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of previous interviews, and I un, you know I dug up some un, unpublished interviews that, that Tim had done with uh, with some with some journalist colleagues that, that were quite revealing. But he certainly he I think he had had enough. He felt that he'd taken the intense process that Mark favoured. You know, in, the, in 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 those last two Talk Talk records, as well as the sonically you know sonic palette, he thought he'd taken it far enough. You know, there are. I think maybe there were certain personality clashes towards the end as well. I think there was definitely, you know, there was definitely a lot of um, the atmosphere was much less 
felicitous during uh, the making of Laughing Stock. Would not to not to say that anyone had any stand up rows or there was any fisty fisty cuffs, but I think there was there was a cert there was a certainly a lot of sort of sitting in a control room. Phil, the engineer, Tim, Mark, and the uh, you know wh whoever was uh, whoever was. Um, tape hopping there at Wessex in silence you know just kind of listening to the same yeah. thing again and again and certainly you know Paul was out of the picture at that point you know he yeah. and, and as you rightly say you know the moment Tim came in I mean Lee was Lee was there for laughing stock but he was uh you know he had to take some time off because he was yeah. very mentally exhausted from you know, having to take, do take upon take upon take of the same drum track, but without seemingly any actual guidance as to what it was that he was doing wrong and why he had to take it again. And similarly, yeah. Paul, you know, not being a session musician, he, he was a, he was someone who thought about his bass, or still does, you know, he's a, a sensitive songwriter type who thinks about his bass lines, goes away, works them out, comes in a week later with them but he was doing that on spirit of eden mm -hmm. and they were getting rejected you know and then he, and then he'd go away and he'd come back and do another one and even back in the you know during the making of it's my life there's one track on it's my life that that uses uh mike oldfield session bass player you know so mark was already at that point mark and tim were it, it, to, to a certain extent treating it like a sort of a, a hollis um solo project uh okay yeah i mean i don't so, say that as in such in such kind of uh naked terms in the book but it's certainly you know it's certainly a parent like yeah that, yeah it was very much as you as you yeah. kind of intimated um phil brown who was on here last year and i read his book and he talks i think he's in your book too he oh yeah he's thankfully very much an open book about his experience with talk talk talks very lovingly about that experience, even as hard as it was, it was a big mind expander and career expander for all of those who were really heavily involved. I interrupted you earlier, though, when you were starting to talk about money, which really interests me, because if Mark Hollis is going to step away from music for 25 years or whatever it ended up being and never be seen and never do another thing, the music has or the money has to be good enough in order to sustain that lifestyle. So I was wondering about, that. is that really it? Does he live off, you know, reissues and royalties and, you know, previous contracts for the rest of his life? I don't think it was. I mean, I, yeah, he, as I, yeah, as I was beginning to say, he did get a large advance from Polydor, but that wasn't what sustained him for all that time. Hmm. Um, subsequent to the solo album, you know, which was let, let me get this right. I, I should was, know. Ninety eight was it? I was going to say ninety six, but you're probably right because you wrote the book. Yeah, somewhere yeah, maybe, it was not, maybe, yeah, or maybe it's sort of some, somewhere, somewhere in between that and towards the end of the nineties. But he, the key driver for his ability to be financially free of of being obligated to be a jobbing musician in the in the way that most you know let's face it most artists either go and tread the boards again or they do production work and is was the no doubt cover of oh, uh, sure 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 of it's my life which was which was obviously a huge radio hit you know and he went i think twice in two consecutive years the uh you know the american rights collection organization bmi kind of gave him their kind of million play awards or, or 10 million play award i think the second year it was you know so they, he got loads they got loads of airplay on that and then of course it was also specifically recorded to strip onto the greatest hits the no doubts greatest hits album which was a massive uh international success so a lot of money came in courtesy of no doubt you know right. and and, and I looked at the, you know, I mean, the Hollis is no, it's not a secret. You, it's it's a matter of public record, you know, because it was a limited company, Hollis Songs. So you can see, you know, the amount of money that 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 is that was going in during those, during that period. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about his wife and kids? First of all, I assume I think he had kids. I don't yes. remember for sure. Okay. Did you speak to any of them? And what do they do? I, I are they, you know, do they? have lives I, I assume is yeah I, I don't get in i don't get into I, I really didn't want to kind of turn it into a kind of um i'm i'm, I'm skirting around the word stalker here but uh, i didn't i didn't really want to be make it into a into a kind of celebrity 
the lifestyle type book. It's more about the music. I mean, I know I did write uh, his wife, Flick, who, uh, yeah, he had two boys. They, you know, they went to school in Wimbledon. There's a lovely story about their uh, their teacher, um, their music teacher, rather, Lawrence Pendrews, who um, Mark befriended and actually then ended up using on the solo album. Mm. Uh, he was the guy who taught both uh, both of Mark's children at, at, at Wimbledon School. And I think Mark, you know, he, 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 he was quite a loyal person to, you know, to people. He was either loyal or he was just really economical with the amount of people that he wanted to have contact with. That's quite good. I wish I'd used that line. Um, <laughs> but he, um, yeah, so lo- so I had a really fantastic uh, um, interview with Lawrence because he w- he knew him in the in the period sort of subsequent to the uh, the solo album um, through the noughties. Uh, and they used to go and play golf together. Um, really? Yeah, they were golfing. Mark Hollis was a golfer. He was a golfer, yeah. Although he was, he refused. This is a classic Hollis thing. He was offered to join this golf club, which was a, um, it was a sort of like a, uh, uh, a, a RADA um, or, or a, an entertainer's club. So basically you got to use these uh, uh, really expensive uh, greens for a very reduced rate, which is some kind of um, uh, entertain. There's some sort of entertainer's, license which enables you know entertainers who maybe don't have as much money as as someone who's sort of you know a, a city banker to join the club who can they can just go and play around a golf and lawrence had managed to you know somewhere he met someone in a pub who got him into this club and then he could he could get mark to join he could you know he could recommend mark as to be a member of the club mark didn't want to be a member just wanted to go along as a guest that sounds right that is, uh, right. That's nice, isn't it? It's kind yeah. of it's, uh, very appropriate. That's in keeping. But no, I, I didn't want to get, I mean, you know, his his boys are leading normal lives as far as I know. I mean, I know. They're I, probably I, in their 30s now, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of them, I didn't put it in the book, actually, I have to say, but I think one of them is, uh, is runs a kind of piano uh, repair a business. Really? Huh. Yeah, really fascinating and very appropriate, really. Yes. You know, was carrying on the kind of that you know, that close listening yes. um, uh, talent of his of his father. Okay. Uh, but I didn't really want to start writing about his children yeah. because partly because of that, you know, there is a one of the reasons why the book is called The Perfect Silence is because there is a you know, there is a silence around him. And I think, you know, Flick, his wife, wants to kind of she wants to maintain that. And also it's very she said in a, you know, the, the one communication we had is we wrote each other, you know, I wrote her a card to offer her the opportunity to read the book. And she said, it's a bit too raw at the moment. I don't really want to, but, um, but best of luck. So that's nice to, 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 to have that um, contact yeah. with her and not have her, you know, not have her respond with a, with a cease and desist letter or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be against character too, if this family that remained so silent for so long, mm suddenly exploded with interviews and talking and everything as soon as the patriarch of that family dies that that would yeah. feel so out of character so it makes yeah. sense i i am curious about something i mean those last years of his life uh, you touched on a little bit with the golf story is he at least i have this image of him just like never leaving the house but does he go does he like call people and text them and email does he yeah. go to the store does he yep. walk around town? Is he, or is he just? I am staying so shielded away from regular life that I'm, you know, in a bunker basically. No, there's none of that. It's, it's re- he's really he, you know, he went on. He was very interested in uh, motorbikes. He had a Ducati, oh. so he went on several lengthy kind of motorbiking tours. I think he did the he did a, a one across the states. He befriended a guy. He befriended a another Ducati rider on a week's um, motorbiking trip he did in uh, in Italy. He also had aspirations to do movie soundtracks. Mm. And he um, going back to what I was saying about the rainbow when I you know my entry point into Talk Talk, you know um, I spoke to a guy called Brian Reitzel. Uh, Brian Reitzel um, was a drummer in uh, Beck's backing band, mm. and then through that, kind of got to know Air and became 
and ended up doing some soundtrack work with Sofia Coppola through Air. Oh, sure. And ended up and is now quite a well-respected music supervisor. And he is a huge Talk Talk fan. And he and his when he I think he was over in London with Air, and he contacted Mark around that in that late nineties period when the solo album had come out because it wasn't released in the US. That was his first attempt at contacting Mark through Keith Asplund, Mark's manager, and Keith apparently told him that Mark only does something every seven years. That's Brian's recollection of what Keith said. I don't, not sure whether that actually happened. It's quite amusing because it was almost seven yeah. years after that in the mid noughties when he contacted Mark again when he was about to do the music for uh, Marie Antoinette, which is Sophia Coppola's film that was going to release. It was going to use original music. It was going to use original instruments from that period, from, oh, the, from, from the pre-revolutionary French uh, oh. um, per, per period. In the end, as you probably know, she opted to use Bow Wow Wow, Madden the I, Nance, Yes, yeah, I remember, the, I remember logical, it well. Fairly logical progression. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> so Mark wasn't really, his services weren't needed, but he formed this relationship with Brian and, and ended up doing uh, a number of, um, he did. He wrote some music for a film which never got used. And then, I mean, this is me speculating whether he recycled some of this music for one thing, one piece of Hollis music, which did appear in the public domain, which was the, uh, which was over a show you got over there that we never got with Kelsey Grammer called boss boss really he has some, yeah he has music in boss he has music in boss yeah he has music in one episode of boss i can't tell you i have to admit okay. i can't over here you know it's it was never released and i've not seen it i've never seen the show and i don't care enough about kelsey grammar to watch it but now maybe <laughs> well you can listen if you search it up on youtube yeah, and yeah. it's okay uh, it's called it's called arp okay. and okay. then a number but it's okay. a very, it's a really atonal, almost kind of Bartok-like mm. piece of sort of atmosphere uh, music. That sounds and about it, right. Yeah, and it's it's good, you know. I mean, is it great? I don't know. It, does it work in the show? I haven't seen the show. Mm -hmm. But um, certainly he was very proud of it, and it came out, you know, I think there was a, there was a, the, the show, they did a kind of vinyl soundtrack, which, which that was on, and, you know, oh, Brian wow. gave Okay. Brian gave Mark a copy. So there was, you know, the, there was a Hollis track. This was, okay. you know, not that long ago now. No. This was sort of, anyway, it was the beginning of the noughties is, is all I can tell okay. you. At the okay. That sounds about a, right. A simple, a simple visit to YouTube will give you yeah, the, uh, I'll pull it up. I'll pull it up. After you, that. you know, you saying this uh, makes me think of something I hadn't considered. I mean, is there, it may, it probably will never see the light of day if there is, but are there tapes of music that he just kept making? Was he all this time that he was kind of locked up in his own house or in his own world? Was he at least still making music, just not for public consumption? Or did he kind of step away from all of that? Well, I can't answer that definitively because obviously those people who would know whether there was yeah. a big archive of music are not talking to anyone. My conjecture, and it's not just mine, but various people I spoke to, is that he was not that interested in recording music for the sake of it. I think he, I think he was, he became a bit of an instrument, a collector of instruments. He got, you know, a collect collection of um, very valuable guitars, and and he had a, a, a um, beautiful, I think, a full size grand piano, and and uh, and some sort of various vintage. Um, instruments but the experience of friends or people who had worked with him who went around to his house was that he wouldn't play them anything he would just demonstrate their tone oh. so he would play like a single sustained note so you know one interview i did i answered the question where you know they were saying well it's interesting that his music kind of it started off with this you know trying to be world dominating and then it ended up being very yes. you know very intimate and 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 granular and it is true and in many ways that that is the book you know the book starts my biography rather it starts with this panoramic um vista of pop music in the 1960s and the 1970s and it's all about you know the movements of sight of psychedelia and punk that mark 
experience via his older brother who was really into that and and also managed Eddie and the Hot Rods and got him involved in in the, in the music business of the of the mid to late 70s and then of course as it gets more singular in the 80s about Mark and his music and the the pursuit of success it then sort of gradually things fall away until lit, you know towards the end of the book it's literally musically it is just his solitary finger yeah repeatedly just pushing the same piano key and yet it's that's, still provocative that's the thing that's so interesting about him and that trajectory is that mm. this, you saying that describing it that way like that's music people want to listen to but for whatever reason mark hollis was able to pull it off he you yeah. do want to listen to mark hollis hit the same key on a <laughs> piano for whatever reason it's compelling and it's gorgeous not everyone yeah. can do that you know yeah it is fascinating um, yeah. Do you know, first of all, I sh I'm not even hundred percent sure what he died of. Do you know? Oh, it was cancer. It was cancer. It was. Okay. I assumed yeah. it was. Was it, mm. is it stomach cancer? Is that what I'm trying to, does um, that sound right to me? I can't remember. I don't, f I mean, I, it's just, I've heard sort of various people tell me what it is and I don't, I, I haven't, I don't know definitively. So I don't really okay. want to, A I, form I don't of cancer. Any, I don't say any, yeah, I, I don't get any more detail than that because again, okay. I mean, one, I just don't have a piece of paper, to, you know, from the from the um, from the hospital telling me what he died of. Uh, yeah. So I don't want to put in conjecture on it. And it's like, you know, yeah. he died of cancer. That's yeah, that's, that's as good as we're going to get. He died, he died too young. Yeah. You know, sixty-four, I believe. Right? Is that yeah, it? yeah, okay. um, yeah. So. You being a right, I mean, I'm guessing there's no way this book could have been in motion prior to his death. So as soon as he no. got right, so as soon as he dies, I don't even know. Are there several people out there clamoring to write the first Mark Hollis book, and well, you it, won it, or what? No, <laughs> no, because no, I would think yeah, that I would be that. a topic ripe for a for a book like this. I won the Hollis competition. Yes, yeah, you was, did. <laughs> um, no, I'll tell you how. I mean, I, it's not a book that I alone, I think, would have been cocky enough, if that's a word that resonates in the uh, in, in the US. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure I would have had singularly the chutzpah to say, I'm going to fucking take the Hollis chalice. That's mine. <laughs> because... Uh, you know, I mean, I think I say in my introduction, there's a number of other writers with way better track records than me that had attempted to uh, at least they skirted around the idea of doing biographies um, in the in the year subsequent to his death, I think, or possibly even before. And they were met with this silence, with this, you know, reluctance of those people in the inner sanctum to speak. Um, I I got asked by Rocket eighty eight, who I have a relationship with, Mal. There, I'd written books for them. I'd done re some research for them as well. Um, asking me, knowing that I was a fan. It's interesting that my my editor, he's not as big a fan as me. And I remember when we, we you know we did the uh, the sleeve book, and I was raving about this the talk the James Marsh artwork, and he was slightly. Um, he was uh, look, slightly looking down his nose at it, you know, in a, in a, which what? is not his, not to his taste, not to his taste. What? Anyway, you have to have know, James. No, I'm not even gonna, but he's a very, he's beautifully opinionated man. He's lovely. Okay. Um, but anyway, he, um, he phoned me and said, listen, you, you're a fan, you know, what do you want to write this book? And I, and it was right at the beginning of lockdown in part of my life is I'm a, I'm a university lecturer in music business. So I work, you know, at that point I was kind of working online a lot. We were doing lectures online. And so it was, you know, it was kind of like an extension. I just thought, okay, well, I can, I could probably get, do some interviews and just feel this one out. And I think um, it became apparent that it wasn't going to be easy. There was going to be a certain amount of um, mystery. I mean, his early life took a long time to put mm -hmm. together. And, and still a lot of it is conjecture because, you know, there's no no family seemingly who, who, are, who are there wanting to speak. There's not a lot of family, you know, uh, out there that I could that I could find. So I was literally using ancestry 
websites and digging that way and, and finding birth certificates and, and, and proof of residence and that sort of thing. So I came back and, and accepted it and, and did it, you know, and, and started really kind of uh, immersing myself in it through lockdown. And it, so it was a perfect time to do it, really, because it whilst it would have been nice to actually physically drive to South End where Hollis grew up, it was I did pretty much all of it just on this very screen that you're watching me on you know talking to people and and double checking fact checking all all of the uh discoveries I made and in addition to that to take it full circle my colleague back at my first record company who used to make us all cassettes he in his travels had procured a huge amount of record company letters, correspondence, track listings, liner notes, and um, basically basic stuff which the various companies that he'd worked with on the Hollis compilations had just not wanted. So I had a really great archive of the old EMI um, press department and all the clippings that they had of the old you know, various correspondence letters between Island Music and and uh, Hollis's lawyers and that sort of thing. So it was really, really useful. I mean, of course, I you know, I had to sort of temper. I couldn't sort of start quoting legal lawyer letters yeah. or whatever, but, yeah. but it certainly gave me the, you know, the patterns and the what was going on behind the scenes information that would right. have been lacking uh, if I didn't have that. So who, I mean, if the family won't talk and the band won't talk, Who's supplying you with the best quotes, with the most, you know, in-depth information? Who's the most helpful along this process? Well, there's uh, obviously there's key mem- a key person to begin with was uh, Simon Brenner, who was the original keyboard player in the band, who was a lovely chap, who I think was, you know, he had a pretty bad experience at a young age, not, you know, being... Um, being sacked from the band, he's over it now, and is a you know has clearly lived a very a, a, a very good life, and is um, and is not you know not in any way bitter about it. So he had a lot of great insight for the early days of Talk Talk. I also, because of my background in uh, the record business, I could I I spoke to their A and R people at EMI and various other employees of EMI who worked with the band. I spoke to all of the session players who who played, including Ian Kerno, who played on the records and co-wrote with Hollis, as well as was as well as being MD for the, all the live shows that they did up until A Color of Spring. Mm-hmm. They didn't um, tour again after that, right? They didn't. No, no, absolutely not. I spoke to the tour manager, who t- you know, who told me some great things, very interesting things about you know how they all knew that there would never be a tour after that after that mm-hmm. final tour. Uh, and how and how Mark, you know, really really hated the process of touring. I spoke to uh, obviously Phil Brown um, repeatedly. I spoke to their manager um, Keith Aston, who initially was reluctant, and I thought I was going to have to file him alongside the ex-members of the band. But he, he eventually kind of came round, and, and we had a couple of very lengthy interviews and various other people along the way who came out of the woodwork. As I say, Lawrence, the, the, the keyboard player, one of the key people who I think is a massively unsung in the story is a guy called Phil Ramakan. I don't know whether that name rings any bells with you. Phil Ramakan is a, in many ways, he, he's kind of like holding up the globe of Talk Talk in a way. He, really? He met Mark when Mark was uh, signed to Ireland Music Phil Ramakan is a is like a Jamaican Londoner, hmm. classically trained keyboard player, who was at that point working with Jimmy Cliff and occasionally kind of um, coming in and playing keys for Bob Marley and anyone else who would come into the Island Studios. Incredible talent, and uh, and he met Mark. He he was playing. He was kind of jo- doing jobbing keyboards ridiculously for a kind of. Um, American New York punk band who were who were expat in London, run by Lydia Lunch and oh, Patrick sure. Paladin, called uh-huh. Snatch. So Ramakan was playing keyboards in Snatch, and also I think with Lena Lovitch. Uh, and he met Mark in the playing pool one time in the um, in the uh, in the island kind of canteen adjacent to the studio. He remembers meeting him when Mark was kind of I think in 
in uh, his first band, The Reaction, who was signed to Ireland um, because Phil Ramekin knew the bass player because he was an American as well, Bruce Douglas, also playing in Snatch. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, I'll, I'll skip to the end because I know we're running out of time. Fast forward to when Simon Brenner gets fired after the party's over. They're desperate for a keyboard player. So Phil joins the Talk Talk on their first big tour. At that point, it's Ramekin's doing all the kind of flourishes and and frankly quite jazzy stuff because he he's really into the same stuff as mark you know john coltrane and um and uh and that uh, and atonal classical music yeah and he um uh before they're as they're routining for this tour because he lives in hackney and at that point mark is living in hackney in east london they meet up at Mark's tower block before they drive across to West London, where the rehearsal studio is, where Talk Talk are rehearsing for the tour. And in that flat, he and Mark start, Mark realises that he's classically trained. And he is like, Phil is like a proto Tim Freeze Green. Really? In that he is, you know, Mark is getting these cassettes out of a bag and saying, I've got this idea. How do I, how do I transfer that to that? And, and Phil's going, Oh, you can easily transpose to different keys. I'll show you how to do that. And he and he starts kind of helping him transpose songs. And out of those sessions, particularly, comes such a shame. Oh, no way. So there's a really, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a fascinating interview with Phil about such a shame. And he, you know, he goes on to do this tour with the band. And such a shame, more than it's my life, is the record that breaks Talk Talk in Europe. It's a huge record in Germany, a huge record in Italy. It eventually, a year later, goes in top 10 in France as well. Mm-hmm. It's the record more than the It's My Life track. That's the, almost like the follow-up there mm-hmm. that makes effectively turns them into, you know, Simple Minds or yeah. like one yeah. of the big European 80s rock bands. Yeah, And Phil... You know, he wrote the middle eight to that. It, it strikes me, you know, from that interview. And he's not one to sort of go round, you know, there's no other. He was very specific and he had very clear memories of these, you know, of how impressed he was with Mark's voice, how when they were trying to transpose to different keys, Mark could, he wasn't, he wasn't pitch perfect, but he could, he could absolutely nail each new key without any hesitation. But it was Phil who was putting them all together, and then he suggested doing that. And when you think about it, he suggested doing that. You know that the um, "Tell Me to Relax" da 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 da. That was Phil coming in, and it's you know, and he, he she suggested a more it's a it's a kind of jazzy thing. Coming yes, in. yes. You compare that to the previous music that Talk Talk had made, the more kind of staccato stuff. Yeah. In anyway, you know. So he does a tour, and he, you know he eventually. He, he can't hack it anymore because he realizes that he, you know, he, he's not going to get a credit. Yeah. Um, and so uh, at that point, Ian Kerno, you know, Ian Kerno comes in. But then much later in the 90s, this is after Phil Ramekin has had a bit of a hit with Naina Cherry. He's kind of, he's helped on Buffalo Stance. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, I love Naina Cherry. He bumps into Mark in a guitar shop in Denmark Street and their friendship's rekindled. And Mark says, oh, I'm looking for co-writers on my solo record. Because obviously at this point, he hasn't got Tim Freeze Green. He's uh-huh. he's not, uh, he hasn't got a co-writer. So he's, he's doing some stuff with um, uh, Dominic, Dominic uh, Miller. You know, Sting's guitarist, various yep. other um, co-writers. So yeah, Phil goes out to Suffolk, where Mark lived, and they and they start working on the song that becomes "Color of Spring," the first, the opening track on the Mark Hollis album. Wow! And you know, before before he does that, Phil insists on getting a a writer's credit, sure. which Mark Good. immediately agrees to. So there Good. you go. Good, rightfully so. <laughs> Well, uh, Ben, I mean, it's clear to me that we're never going to know everything that we probably want to know about Mark, but Mm. the best we're going to do is your book. And um, I am for the moment. Yes. And I am so glad that you took the time to read this book because obsessives like me have just been dying for something like this to satiate their curiosity. 
Well, I hope it doesn't disappoint, John. That's all I can say. I mean, it, there's no way that it could. There's no way. There's a lot in there. And, uh, you know, I think there's going to be, there's no sort of massive Albert Goldman revelation. <laughs> That's a plot spoiler. But, um, you know, <laughs> I hope at the very least that it will add to people's listening pleasure. Yeah, I do too. Um, Okay, thanks, Ben. I may want to chat with you again sometime about everything else you've done besides Talk Talk, if you're open to it. Because yeah, I just absolutely. would love to know more about your career and what you write about and the bands you've signed and all your stories. That's what we love around here are stories. Okay, yeah. I well, may I'll, hit you I'll, up again. I'll be here in this room. All right, there you have it, Ben Wardle. I am so excited to read this book, I can hardly stand it. I mean, I can't imagine a more perfect topic for a book that I would want to read. So thank you, Ben, for doing the very best you could with what you had to work for. I understand now that, um, yes, certain family members didn't contribute, band members didn't contribute, and that might suck, but I can also understand why that would be. I mean, they were honoring this force, this beloved force, creative force in their lives who wanted it that way, and I get it. But fans like us want to know what's really going on there, and Ben told, is telling that story, and I'm so grateful that he did. Thank you, Ben, for everything. And thank you, Brent, for um, gifting me this book. I'm so grateful to you as well. Um, now, Rocket88 is the publisher of the book. If you go to the link, markhollisbook.com, that's in the description of the show, and pre-order, that's the only place you can do it right now. And uh, they have assured me that they will be sending me a copy of the book that I will give away to all of you. So as I always say, you just have to be a $2 donator to the podcast, it's a monthly thing. You set it and forget it, and it's two bucks a month, and then that puts you in a, in the running for any and all swag we ever give away. And I've been giving away a ton of books lately and CDs. Some of them aren't even claimed yet for some reason. So if you want to be in the running for this book, just sign up. It's so easy. You know, the link for that is in the description here as well. Anyway, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Rocket88, and uh, thank you, Yan, for putting all this together, more importantly. By the way, I want to close it out with this single, Talk Talk. If you follow the band on the socials, you'll know, you know this already, it was 40 years ago this week that this single came out, their very first single. It's the 40th anniversary right now of this. Can you believe that? Anyway, love you all. We'll talk to you later.